Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I will review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication and this week's episode I am back to review again my thoughts on 2017's adaptation of Stephen King's 1986 masterpiece, It. So, unless you've been living in a sewer over the last couple weeks, uh, we now have on our hands a massive, giant, successful blockbuster adaptation of a Stephen King story. It, um, it's all everyone's been talking about. And just as we transition from uh, September's It towards October's Stranger Things Season 2, it has become apparent that these last two years, there has been a winner of the year, and that has been Finn Wolfhard. Finn Wolfhard won 2016, the summer of 2016, and he definitely won uh, the summer of 2017, and is about to win the uh, fall of 2017. So, the trajectory that this kid is going, I... I just wonder what he has in store for, for round three next year. What What is going to happen in 2018? But I'm sure that Finn Wolfhard is going to bring it hard. Anyway, guys, so why am I re-reviewing it? Um, because on, if you didn't listen to last week's episode, um, I saw it in the drive-in, and it was a great experience. You can go and listen, and I, I think that my, my review is, is actually pretty thorough but it is um, it is limited with what I was able to talk about because the drive-in does not provide the best uh, visual experience. I can't I couldn't really comment on the effectiveness of the, the cinematography or the special effects. Um, and by the end of the movie, I was very distracted by all the external stimuli around the, uh, the, the screen itself that I, I couldn't really comment too much on the ending of the movie. So, if you haven't listened to last week's episode, go, go give it a listen to. I, I do express a lot of thoughts and I heap a lot of praise on the movie. But um, this past week, I was able to go back um, into a theater, a regular theater, um, in the dark and uh, was able to experience it, um, not in my car, um, <clears throat> not distracted by a rising moon above the screen or people walking back and forth. I was just able to, to get the normal cinematic experience. And so I'll be able to share the thoughts that I wasn't able to share the, the first time around. So it, I, I believe that I'll get some closure. Um, and one thing that's really neat about seeing it, we are now, um, two weeks out since the, the, the premiere, since it, it came out, um, and, you know, smashed records and everything. Now, two weeks out, I saw it on a Friday night. The theater was packed. The theater was, there was not an empty seat at all, which is great. And not only is it great, um, and, and, and not only is that notable because, I mean, this movie now has legs and in, 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 in the society and the society, but in what we live in now, the world in which we live in terms of cinema and blockbusters, um, it, it's very rare that, couple days after a movie um, that, that a, a theater will, will be sold out or that it continues to have legs. Um, but this one does. And not only is that, like I said, notable, um, but also ge- geographically from where I live, right now there is a, a very big fair uh, occurring that occurs once a year in, in my area that will draw people away from other activities that they would otherwise go to on a Friday night, such as um, 
the movies. So for this fair to be in full swing, um, and it's a really big attraction. It really is. It sounds, I, I sound, it sounds very hokey, but it actually is a, a pretty big attraction for this area. Um, for this fair to be going and for it to be sold out. Um, again, that, that's, that's really awesome. And it shows that there's a lot of strength in this movie. Um, and there's people that I, people I was sitting to, I was actually talking to and they were really nice and they hadn't seen it yet. And they definitely enjoyed it. The people on my other side, they definitely enjoyed it. So everyone was giggling in the theater. It was just, everyone loved it. People that saw it for the first time, people I'm sure were, were going again for the second time, like myself, everyone loved it. Um, so I'll, I'll definitely be able to, to share my thoughts, but I'm actually kind of getting ahead of myself here. But what I want to do before I got any, any further in my second review of it, I of course wanted to discuss, uh, just some, uh, some shameless plugs. Um, so I got a, uh, Instagram message from, um, Matt over at, uh, ka-tet19.net and he's got some big news coming guys, uh, some exciting news. So I don't know if you follow him on Instagram or Twitter, but I would head on over there. You might be able to get some clues as to what he might have in store next, but I am very excited for the, his next batch of shirts and I will definitely keep you updated. And if, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, uh, ka 19.net is um, a very stylish and creative and loving tribute to to Stephen King. So if you want to, I'm currently wearing the Ka symbol right now, the Ka symbol t-shirt. So if you love Stephen King and you love t-shirts, then Ka-Tet19.net is the place for you to be. And Matt has some uh, pretty cool stuff coming that is uh, not Dark Tower related. And I'm very, very excited and I'm sure that you will be as well. Also, if you haven't done so already, check uh, Josh's uh, website, One for the Road. Go on over to One for the Road 2018. Uh, if you guys listened to my interview with Josh earlier this summer, um, this guy's got the goods, man. He he has a, he has a vision. He is a Stephen King fan. Uh, he's one of us, and he's making a movie, and he is uh, adapting Night Shift's story, One for the Road, um, which puts us in a world... Um, in, in a post-Salem's Lot, Maine. So check it out, and if you have a couple bucks, uh, throw it his way, and you will help fund a, a Stephen King movie. So if you were disappointed with The Dark Tower and wish that you had a say, and wish that you were able to contribute in some way, then you can rectify that by heading on over to OneForTheRoad2018.com, and you'll be able to, to help make a Stephen King movie. Speaking of Stephen King movies, we have two, um, not just it, but we have two that are very, very close. Um, as I am recording this, it is September 23rd, so in six days, in less than one week. Uh, so on Friday, Thursday night at midnight, um, our next Stephen King movie will arrive to your tablets, to your computers, to your game consoles, to your smart TVs, to your Apple TVs, to your televisions on Netflix. However you want to watch Netflix, it will be coming there, and that is Gerald's Game. So if you guys liked uh, the movies Oculus or Hush, the writer-director, uh, who, who was really, really good. When I saw Hush, I, I said, I think I tweeted it out, I said, well, there's, there's no reason now why anyone needs to make a Gerald's Game movie. 
Um, and then lo and behold, the director of, of Hush um, immediately announced that he was making a Gerald's Game movie. And it looks really good. I, this is a movie that I was never sure, or this is a, a, a property that I was never sure could actually be made into a movie because it is so internal. It is just Jesse's story and you're in her mind the entire time. And just the, the way that that a movie works, you are always outside um, of the character. I just never thought that it would work. Based on the trailer, it looks like it's going to work. Um, first of all, it looks it looks beautiful. Um, just the, the the establishing shots, the the way that the eclipse looks, it looks great. And uh, I I'm very excited to see how this one turns out. Um, Oculus was fun. Hush was great. So there is a lot of of talent um, on display here. And, uh, so I will definitely review, I, I can't, I can't say that I'll be able to review it next weekend, but I will definitely review Gerald's game when it comes out. Also, um, coming to Netflix one month after that on October 20th is the novella 1922, which was included in the full dark, no stars collection, which was, uh, what was that? 2008, 2009. Uh, it is a dark bunch of stories. Really, really good, and, and 1922 is a very, very effective uh, novella about a marriage. It's a really good companion piece to A Good Marriage, and it is dark. It is a dark—all of the stories are dark in that collection, but this one is is, is pretty, pretty bleak. And uh, it stars uh, Stephen King alum, Tom Jane. Tom, I just want my kids back, Jane, uh, who stars as the main character, Um Spoiler alert, he kills his wife and uh, takes place, spoiler alert, in 1922 on a farm. And again, this looks good. This looks, just cinematically speaking, there are some great establishing shots of the farmland. And I'm, I'm very excited to, to see what what uh, this, this you know, has in store. So for the, the, the end of September in, into October, we get the one-two punch of Gerald's Game in 1922, both, if you think about it, two pretty screwed up views on on marriage, uh, coming coming your way, and uh, then the the week after that, um, also on Netflix, we have Stranger Things Stranger Things uh, season two. So it's it's a very very exciting time for horror fans, Stephen King fans, and Netflix fans. So I will definitely review Gerald's Game, nineteen twenty two, and uh, Stranger Things season two when they come out. So. With all of that said, guys, um, I am going to head into my thoughts about it um, that I wasn't able to get to the, the first time around. And I'm going to follow when I'm done with that. It's not going to take uh, that that long. And when I'm done with that, I'm going to share your thoughts because I, I really wanted your thoughts on it. And many of you... Know, wrote in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com and it's really important that you guys continue to do that and uh, a lot of you have a lot of thoughts out there on, on the movie, the effectiveness on the movie, what you liked about the movie, what you didn't like about the movie so when I'm done finishing my thoughts on it, I'm going to, to share your thoughts on it so make sure that you, you stick around to, to hear all of um, other constant readers, constant listeners, the members of our, our larger Losers Club, our larger quartet, what they think about Stephen King's latest adaptation. So I, I, I definitely talked about the kids last week, but, but let me talk about how we meet the kids. Um, the way that 
Muschietti, Andy Muschietti, d- directed our introduction to the Losers Club is, it really could be the highlight of the movie. It is a masterful, lively introduction to each of our characters, all very naturalistic. Um, by this point, we've already met Bill um, when we met Georgie, um, but now we see him with his peers in the hallways. He's there with uh, his friends, Richie and Stan and Eddie. So last week, like I said, I heaped praises on these kids. I will never miss an opportunity to 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 just shower these kids with with just accolades because they make this movie and I think this is the reason why the movie is being talked about why it is successful why it's sticking with people because you have to buy you have to buy the losers club and you certainly do here um it's these young actors it's it's everything to do with these young actors and here Four of them just come bursting right out of the scene. I mean, the the everything about it, the the their rhythm is natural. The, the their banter, it isn't forced. All of it, it just it just works so well. And Muschietti is is behind them, directing them to perfection. He is leading them literally through the hallways with his camera direction. He has coached them on how to interact with each other, and it all makes for one of Stephen King's most notable adaptations. And as we are introduced to them as a core, we, we follow them through the hallway, and as we follow them through the hallway, the, the scene is electric. I mean, we meet other notable characters, including Henry, Patrick, Victor, uh, Belch. We meet Mr. Keene's daughter, who then brings us to our next loser, Bev. And Bev, like I talked about last week, she is the scene stealer. She is just operating on her, her own level, and her introduction is is very much like the character itself. It's it's at its own level. It is, it is quick. It's to the point. We realize very, very early on um, in a moment that she is a loner. She's an outcast, and she endures. You know, there is a resilience to her. There's a strength to this character that defined her literary counterpart that was missing, and nothing against the actress in the 1990 TV miniseries, but she wasn't written the way that I think many of us found Bev to, to truly be. It wasn't Bev. It really wasn't Bev, and Sophia Lillis is is Bev. And, you know, her readiness in this scene when she's in the stall and her ingenuity to, to hold up her bag, um, either, to me, it, it demonstrates a uh, quick-thinking mind or a... Batman-styled level of preparation to just be ready for all occurrences, no matter what. Either way, it's just a a great way to show what type of character that that Bev is. Um, And then, you know, when we meet Ben, it's fun. I mean, you just, your your heart breaks for the kid. Um, You know, I mean, the first time I saw it, I I was so caught up in, in the charm of the moment. I mean, the it's a very charming scene and it's funny. I mean, it's the introduction to the new kids on the block running joke. And, um, you know, the, the second time around, I just, I saw the heartbreak in Ben and the vulnerability in Ben. And, um, I know that I wasn't, I wasn't down on the actor. It wasn't the actor. It's just, I felt that the character in what I reviewed last week that he isn't given as much to do. I still agree with that, but it, it, it isn't, um, it isn't the actor's fault. In fact, I think that he is a great Ben, and I wish that he was given more to do. I, I just, I, I think that the character suffers. Um, he, he disappears for large chunks of the movie and doesn't impact the, the narrative the way that his literary counterpart did. Not as bad as Mike does. I'm going to get to Mike later on. But, uh, but, but Ben, I, I really 
focus this time around, knowing where, that the jokes were coming, I, I could kind of cut away that and I could just watch just the way that he looks at, at Bev and, you know, just knowing that he's so vulnerable and so fragile and so kind. Um, so I, I, I enjoyed Ben a lot more the second time around. Um, so the kids, guys, the kids are great. Kids are fantastic, and uh, whatever actors they get to fill their uh, adult counterpart roles, they're they're gonna have some pretty big shoes to fill, and it's gonna be good to see the the, the kid actors back again in some flashback scenes, and I'll I'll talk about what those flashback scenes might be later on, because it has everything to do with the ending, um, and I'll talk about the ending later on as well. Now, the kids are great. Don't get me wrong, I, I, I like I said, I, I talked about the kids last week. A couple things I did not talk about last week are some influences here that I definitely spotted this time around. And what what I, I found while watching this um, this time around in the theater, I clearly Spielberg um, is is on display. and you can't make a movie set in the 1980s in um, in, in a small city slash suburbs without invoking Amblin. And that was one of the reasons why I loved the change from the 1950s to the 1980s because it was still going to be able to invoke similar sensibilities that had been found in Amblin films. Um, but it isn't just beholden to Spielberg the way that um, Stranger Things is. Um, but Stranger Things is kind of its own thing too. It's very Stephen King, whatever. But... Uh, or I, I guess a better argument would be it isn't beholden to Amblin or Spielberg the way that Super 8 was. Uh, this, um, you know, this this really does kind of feel like its own thing at times, but whenever you do get kids on bikes riding through the streets like Wild Furies, uh, they, they just, it, the way that they fan out on their bikes um, like, a, like a pack of birds, like fighter jets, um, it, it definitely will always invoke Amblin, as it should, and that's great. And so I, I think that Muschietti leaned into that, which I think he needed to. I think that was a great choice. And at times, the score, I, I think, swelled in a very John Williams sort of way, which also is a very, very smart move. Now, not only do I feel that it had um, Spielbergian and John Williams touchstones to it, I also felt that it had Tim Burton and Danny Elfman there at times. Uh I think the horror itself, and I'll talk about the, the horror and, and the argument being made around the, the horror. First of all, people are saying that's not a horror movie, which is ridiculous to me, but the, the argument of the, the types of scares and whether or not it is quote-unquote scary, that's a different argument. But there is a playfulness to the fright at times um, that that to me invokes what Tim Burton is all about. And, and certainly... Some of the designs in the movie are, are completely Tim Burton. The house on Niebold Street looks like something out of a Tim Burton set. When the the clown's face towards the end of the movie parts and we, we see the deadlights for the first time, the, the, the mouth opens in such a way that it basically looks like the, the sandworm from, from Beetlejuice. So I, I whether this is unintentional or intentional, I definitely got some, some Tim Burton... Um, touchstones in there that that, that I, I thought were, were very effective because Tim Burton, what, what I like about him is that he makes spooky fun. And 
there is a celebratory nature, and I'll, again, I'm going to talk about this when I examine the horror aspect of this, but there's a celebratory nature to to uh, to fear that that you find in Tim Burton, and I, I found that on display here, where you just revel in, in kind of being scared. And uh, the score at time, um, to me, uh, invoked some Danny Elfman. So the, I, I definitely got some Tim Burton and some Spielberg out of there, which, which I think is fun. Um... Now I want to talk about the adults. In the in the in the book, we we clearly saw that its presence in shaping this land, which ultimately became the 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 the, the village of Derry, the town of Derry, the city of Derry, it, it poisoned the the atmosphere, not unlike the way the the Tommyknockers poisoned the air and the inhabitants of of um. Was that Haven? Was that Haven, uh, Maine? Um, but um. But here we, we also get the, the, the similar poisoning of, of the, the, the values and the morality and the kindness of our adults. Now, in the books, Stephen King provides some nuance here that not every adult was bad. There was something wrong with Derry. There was always something fundamentally wrong about this city. But not every adult was, was evil. Not every adult was awful. I mean, we had Officer Nell. There's no Officer Nell figure here. There doesn't need to be. Um, I don't think that we need a cartoon character, um, Irish cop walking around talking like Banshee from X-Men. But, you know, I mean, we also had Richie's parents who were very kind and just understood their son as much as they could and loved him and provided him the freedom that a, a, you know, wild Richie needed. Um, and, and one of the, there's a scene in the book that I'll, I'll always love that, um, really speaks to me that it's in mom, her, his mom's state of uh, mind through her perspective and she's reflecting on on Richie and her friends and kind of just speaking about childhood at large and how at times he frightened her that his his inability to to look for safety um just scared her and that's kind of childhood in a nutshell and so there, there was more nuance there than there is in in the movie but at the end of the day there doesn't need to be that nuance Muschietti doesn't have to go there I just kind of wanted to point that out because it, it works. It makes a very specific and well-argued point that in in his movie that he's making here, he he presents the friends of childhood and the, the unfortunate and unfair way that adults ruin... The innocence of childhood. That is uh, that sound that you hear is uh, is my furry co-host making her presence known, uh, making a mess wherever she goes. So, I just wanted to kind of touch upon that. I mean, and I I really think that Muschietti does a very very effective job uh, showing the the inhumanity of the adults, whether it be Eddie's mom. Um, in fact, there is a scene. After Eddie breaks his arm and she's yelling at the kids, there's a quick shot. And this is why I think that Machete... I, dude's name is, like, Machete. That's I never really realized that. That's awesome. Good for him. Um, so Machete uh, does a, a phenomenal job. And this is the, the reason why I, I think he, he deserves so much praise for, for, for making this movie be what it is. It's when she's yelling at 
at the, the, the Losers Club. Now, this is this scene has come on the heels of the kids facing off with, with a, a legitimate monster, but this scene is so potent and palpable and recognizable that we have our kids facing off with another actual monster, a woman suffering from Munchausen's by proxy. But even if it wasn't that... It is still something that we've all experienced one way or another when we have had to face someone else's angry parent and how the feeling that you get is it's it's a specific feeling that you never encounter at any other point in your life. There is a and I don't know if there's a word for it or a term for it, but the feeling of being yelled at by a friend's parent. It is its own emotion. And it is captured in that moment, especially for one split second when it cuts to Eddie in the car crying. And he's not crying because his arm is broken. He's not crying because a monster almost killed him or his friends, but because his mother is yelling at his friends. And it is so true. And the fact that Muschietti was able to capture that truth and he knew to capture that truth speaks volumes about the thought process that went on in his mind when making that movie. And it's these little moments like that that I believe is making this movie just continue to expand um, and, and, and not recede into the shadows as a um, just flash in the pan. It continues to grow because there's... There's, there's legitimate moments of, of truth and honesty in there that, that I think are, are very, very appreciative. Um, I mean, I've already talked about Mr. Keen and how creepy... I mean, it is so creepy. Um, and, uh, of course, you know, Henry's dad and, and Bill's dad is, is not there for his son. And, of course, Bev's dad is seeing... Watching the movie again, it's just watching Bev's dad scene. It, it's at the end with him. It is it is hard to watch. It is really really hard to watch. Um, it's awful. So I mean, I I applaud Muschietti for being able to effectively and um, I don't know. It's just very. Just, he streamlined it. Like I said, King provides some nuance. He realized he didn't need that nuance. He just cut out the fat and just went straight for this metaphor here and was able to back up his metaphor with some very strong performances um, by by these adult actors. So, everything else that I talked about um, last week was praise. Um, I, I need to, to discuss some, some issues that I have because I didn't really have many issues last week. And it's not like I want to talk about issues that I have, but watching it again brought some things to light that I... I, I just want to explore here. Um, the first of which is Mike. I know that I talked about this last week, but it, it only reinforced it more this week that my concern last week when I reviewed it was that he was by far the weakest member of the Losers Club. I was really hoping that when I went back and watched it, I would see something different or I wouldn't be disappointed, but my second viewing, did it didn't help. Um maybe it's because of all of the characters in the movie, his is the one that is most altered for the screen. He, he's given this, this truly horrific and tragic backstory. He isn't the historian of the group. He, he doesn't have a role in this movie other than to kill Henry. 
I mean, folks, Mike kills a guy. I mean, that is really messed up. I mean, it is one thing to kill a monster. That, 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 that still lies in, in the realm of childhood possibility. But the murder of a human being, that, that is something different. That's a heavy weight on a child. And I get it. it it's in self-defense. But, I mean, I have a feeling that it would completely break a kid if he killed someone else. Not a monster, not a werewolf, not a, uh, a painting monster, not a um, headless uh, egg uh, Easter egg hunt victim, not uh, not a Georgie ghost, not um, um, uh, hair from a drain, uh, not a not a leper monster, but an actual human being. I, I think that it would completely break Mike. I, I mean, I at the very least, even even if you break him, even if he wasn't curled up in a corner crying because he took someone else's life, I, I think that it would have an impact. I mean, Stan, look at Stan, and Muschietti, again, like, I, I don't even like criticizing this movie, because the guy was on fire making this movie, but he knew when he needed to, to show the the effect of being attacked by this creature, and, and the effect that it would have on a child, so when Stan, um, it, when Stan is... Uh, being sucked on like his face is being sucked on by by the creature it is it is a very disturbing moment he is violated he is violated in that moment by it um and we see him react to that he has a very emotional and honest and deep reaction to it that is going to carry this character into the 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 next movie knowing where his arc takes him you can see that this is where the crack forms. That's gonna ultimately spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Seriously, if you don't want to know what happens to Stan, um, but spoiler alert. Here we go. I mean, Stan kills himself, and you can tell that this is the moment where he really he dies in this moment. It's just a you know, thirty years later, it's it's going to actually happen, but it is because of this moment. Um, and and so I mean, Muschietti knows to to spend some time. And you don't need a lot of time, but enough time to, to actually see w- w- what happens with, with this character. There's an emotional fallout from, from something that happens to him. Um, and there's no emotional fallout um, with Mike after killing <laughs> killing a, a, a kid. And yeah, I get it. I mean, Henry was awful, and Henry was taunting him, and, and Henry was a bully, and Henry said that he wished that he burned his parents alive. And yeah, that all of that is awful. So maybe you can make the argument that, that Mike wouldn't care, but I, I don't think that uh, a 13-year-old kid can kill another kid regardless of, of how monstrous or, or horrific that, that other kid is without having some sort of emotional um, ramifications. Now, with all of that said, all of my arguments could be completely moot because this is only one of a two-part chapter, right? Um, and based on Muschietti's interviews, Mike is going to be a central figure. Anyone that's read the books will know this. Books. Book. Anyone that's read the book knows um, Mike's role in in the adult story. Mike stays behind, and there is a poignancy there that the kid that thinks that he's the outsider becomes the ultimate insider, the ultimate part of Derry itself, by being the only one that stays behind to watch after Derry. So, 
my issues could be completely moot um, because we we could get uh, that character filled in a lot more in the sequel and and have these moments matter so much more. So one of the things that Muschietti has discussed is that Mike is going to be almost I don't I don't know if, if the word unrecognizable um, is is apt, but the Mike that we knew from the books was. Um, uh, not weary, weathered. Um, he's kind of like a white, he's a lighthouse keeper, you know? So uh, imagine, you know, just nature taking its toll on him. You know, he's been beaten down, but he's also a very, very strong and resilient guy. Um, very stoic, uh, watching over this town and keeping tabs. There's a, a lot of strength and a lot of heroism to him. The Mike in the sequel, in the movie, doesn't look like he's going to be just that. Um, Muschietti said that he is going to have addiction problems, and maybe those addiction problems will come from the fact that he completely remembers what had happened because he does research, because he is altering his mind as he's doing research to find the ritual of Chud, and possibly because, as a child, he murdered someone. Okay? So maybe all of that will be... Um, will be addressed in the sequel. But for right now, that really took me out of it. Um, and I felt that just Mike was a, was a non-entity. I hope that in the sequel, Mike, the, the adult version of Mike, is given a lot more weight than the kid version of Mike was. Because Mike in the movie doesn't have any notable interaction with any of the other loser club kids, not the way that Bev has with Ben or Bill or Richie has with Eddie or Bill or even Ben. Um, you know, so I, 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 I just, I want more out of this character because I really like this character and I thought the kid that played him was fine. It's just that like Ben, he didn't have a lot to do. In fact, he had less to do in this movie than Ben did. So, um, I really, I'm, I'm hoping that we get more, um, out of Mike in the sequel. And, uh, so that's one issue that I have. Um, another issue that I have, guys, and I, I have to talk about it. So I, I mentioned it a little bit last week, I believe, but I couldn't really speak to it because, like I said, I was watching it at a drive-in theater and, um, the drive-in is not the, the best place to, to fully critique CGI and the special effects, but I, I guess this is going to be completely up to you. Maybe you don't care. Maybe you don't care about the CGI. Maybe it doesn't take you out. It completely takes me out. Um, I, I am not a massive fan now of that opening scene. Um, I like everything up until uh, Pennywise's mouth opens to, to bite Georgie's arm off and then everything from the rest of that scene I just don't like um, because it just doesn't work from a visual visual perspective it, it seems like a lesser movie um, and the, the the CGI for the rest of the, the the movie when it's used whether it be the uh, the, the painting lady whether it be uh, puppet Georgie in uh, Bill's basement um, whether it be the, the, the kids that, that eat Patrick or whatever they do to Patrick. And speaking of Patrick, I mean, come on. You get Patrick Hockstetter, who might be one of the most recipients of the, the most gruesome deaths in, in Stephen King history. I was thinking about this. And having flying insect leeches uh, 
completely eat you alive would be a great nod to stand by me. Um, you know, cause you know, a friend of mine, you know, referred to this as stand by me on steroids and it, everyone that, that knows it knows that that's exactly the case. But I think that this would be a great kind of wink if they went with that, with Patrick Hockstetter's death. Um, but that, that's, that's whatever. I mean, we get Patrick Hockstetter and he dies and it's, it's kind of a nothing. It's kind of nothing. I, I still believe that Owen Teague should have played Henry. He, uh, he just has more acting chops and he has more menace and he, he's kind of more unhinged, um, than I believe that, that Henry is. Um, I, I do like the way that the actor played, who played Henry played him in that dazed state when he went after the balloon, um, and in the mailbox and then went to his dad. I like that look on his face. I thought he did a really good job, but going back to the CGI, um, it, to me, it did not work. It, it, it just really didn't. When CGI is used in a horror movie, for the effect of a scare, to me, it's just it's just never scary. Um, maybe that's just me, you know. Maybe that will always be completely subjective um, from from person to person. Um, you know, maybe others find it uh, scary. Certainly, in the in the audience, people were jumping out of their seats and people were screaming. And yeah, that's that's great. That's great. But um, but to me, it just it just doesn't it doesn't work as as a scare. Um, now here's, I guess the biggest, the biggest issue that I have from a structural standpoint, and that is the, 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 the climax of the movie onwards. So the end of the second act and all of the third act, um, it's still good. And it, it, it bothers me to even mention it because it's still good. Um, but it really illustrates why Stephen King's book is a masterpiece and why this is a good movie. Um, Nybold Street or Niebold Street, uh, be, I don't like that it is the, I understand why it, it, it becomes the, the epicenter here. It's clean. It's a clean decision, right? You know, this is where it lives. This is where it goes down in the sewers. Let's go to Niebold Street. It's where it's, it is a location point that makes sense, right? Where in the book, Niebold Street is a decision that the kids make to go. Um, and to, to fight the monster, they do so, but realize that in order to really get to the monster, they have to get to the sewers, which means that they have to continue to think about this, continue to do more detective work, continue to use their brains, um, and then head into the sewers. So in the book, we see, we see a literal escalation of the unreality of the world that they live in. So the, the layers get peeled back of reality as they literally descend deeper into magic. Um, they, they go deeper and deeper into basically a fairy tale until they get to a door, a fairy tale door that takes them to the threshold of another universe entirely. Here we get them going to Niebolt Street and then them going back to Niebolt Street. I believe that the decision to limit the entrance to the the clown's lair, um, I believe that it, it created uh, redundancy. So by the second time they went to the Niebolt Street house, I felt that the, 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 the story became a little bit more listless than it should be in that moment. Um, rather than ramping up, it had the sense of retread, been there, done that. What saves it? 
is the interactions between the characters. But having to go back to the same physical location, to me, took the, the wind out of the sails. Now, in the book, Neibolt Street, let's deconstruct this. Um, this was the kids using their deductive skills because between Eddie's leper and between Richie and um, Bill almost getting eviscerated by the, the werewolf at Neibolt Street, they realized that that house was a location of this creature, and they thought that this is where it was, where it resided, and this is where they make the decision to go kill it. So it is them truly gathering their strength and their resources, their resiliency, and working together as a group, really, for the first time to go hunt this creature. Um, it is also the scene where they are truly in danger as a group, for the first time. There is true menace in that scene. At any time, they could die. And they they are able to beat it back. They don't kill it. It escapes into the drain. And that's when they realize that it um, lives really in the sewers and they have to go hunt it down. So that leads them to their, their, their next um, quest to get into the sewers. So the, the, the house on Nybolt Street leads to the, the next part of the book. Um, whereas here, going to Nebold Street leads them only going back to Nebold Street, um, which is kind of a, in, to me, like I said, it's, we've been there, we've seen it, we've done that. Um, and also, Henry has less to do Henry shows up, Henry is dispatched, and that's it. In the book, Henry and uh, Victor and Belch are following, through them, following them through the sewers. There is the, the, the sense that um, you know, the, the, the Losers Club are at, at risk of getting lost in the sewers. So there's the danger of an extra-dimensional um, child-eating uh, entity in the sewers that they're actively hunting. There is the, the, the risk of them very realistically getting lost and dying alone in the dark from dehydration um, and cold. And then there is the risk of being killed by a sociopathic bully um, who is coming up behind them, So who also presents this, this wild card factor. So there is a lot of tension in the book that I feel is, is not quite here because Henry shows up I believe, to give Mike something to do and then is dispatched. I will say this about Henry's death, if it is a death at all. Um, his death, as he falls through the well, reveals a, a deeper um, section of, of the lair um, than, than where the kids were, were residing at the, at the cistern. Um, so that actually could open up the fact that Henry might not be dead at all, um, at the very least, it does reveal that um, when the, the clown disappears down the well at the, at the very, very end, um, it, it shows that the, the dairy goes down much further than, than just the, the house on Niebold Street. So um, that is, to me, kind of a, an issue that, that presented itself the, the second time around. Because, like I said, by this point, when I was watching it the first time, I was so enamored with the moon rising behind the screen that I was paying more attention to the moon and not the ending of the movie. Um, which, I last week, I, just, I discussed my, my issues with the fact that it, it is such a physical ending. They're just beating the, the monster with, with weaponry which I still have issues with. 
um, because I, I don't believe that it, it should just be about fear and not being afraid. That's one component, I believe, of, of the what makes the book work so much. That is one theme that, that King is, is describing, but the, the one theme that I, I believe that Muschietti did not really explore which to me personally is is the most important, that is the magic of childhood and how that magic is corrupted within adulthood um, and how you can use the magic, the literal magic of childhood to combat your the, 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 the trappings of of adulthood. And and that really, to me, was not on, the, on display. And maybe it's because, and this is sad, but in 2017, kids don't play the way that they, they did when, uh, when I was growing up. And maybe it's because the kids were aged up. You know, they were they were middle school kids. Here, they're high school kids. They're freshmen. Or maybe it's an 8 through 12 school. I don't know. I don't know. But um, but they, they don't seem to be really playing. But the thing is, the kids in, in Stranger Things from the Duffer Brothers, I can picture those kids playing. I can picture them playing in a stream and building a... Um, you know, building a dam just to see what they can do and, and going and playing like safari. And, and like, I can see them do, I can see those kids doing that in Stranger Things. I don't see our kids here doing that. Um, which again, I love, I love the kids in this movie. Uh, what, seeing it again, like there was one scene that I didn't notice the first time around when in the background, Richie is just playing, like there, there's the, the parade, the 4th of July parade, and Richie's just playing with his other kids' tuba. Um, it's just such a great background gag, and I just love, Muschietti nailed Richie. Again, um, I, I, I've, you know, listened to some reviews where they're, they're kind of, kind of dismissive of, of Richie, um, saying that he's just, you know, the loudmouth, but that's not it. That's not it. When, when, when Bill, when they're in the Barrens and Bill wants to go in the sewer, Richie is right behind him. When Bill goes into the house on Nybolt Street, bet, uh, Richie's afraid, but it's Richie on the stairs right beside him. Um, Richie is the, his right-hand man, Richie, is a, a leader of the group. The group, you know, splinters not necessarily because Eddie is taken away, but because Bill and Richie have their fight. So I, I really am happy that Muschietti got that Richie character right. Um, he isn't just a jokester. He is very much the heart and soul of, of the group. Um, so here's a thought about the sequel. Um I, I think that the the very smart decision to separate this um, the story into two parts, the first part being the the kids and the second part being the adults, I believe it was a very smart and very clean decision. Um, however, in doing so, I think that it also does back them into a corner for the sequel because it also reveals the the brilliance of King's uh, storytelling abilities and, and how he wove this narrative um, between these two timelines in and out of each other. So in the book, you know, we, we get the establishing scene um, of Georgie, of course, but then, you know, we start to get the, the, the present day with the adults. And as we meet the adults, he starts to uh, introduce the, the, the mysteries of Derry, and he starts to raise the question of what happened in the past and in the flashbacks he starts answering what happened that our adult characters are asking and because our adult characters are in the dark we are in the dark 
with our main characters. So these reveals, which happen in the past, are meaningful. The problem is, is that we have now experienced everything in the past. Therefore, if our adult characters have memory loss, it's going to feel like a waste of time because we know the answers. So while I understand the decision to break it into two clean parts, kids and adults, I see now that there might be some issues with the adult story. Um, and maybe it really won't matter in the end. And I think actually there is some space to tell some um, story that we might not have seen. Um, we, we did see Pennywise hint at the, the, the cosmic nature of, of itself. And with the, the, the fall of Henry Bowers, um, it would be cool if there was a secret memory that they, they all forgot about, um, in which they, they actually went after the clown, um, even deeper and they, they saw its true self and there was a battle that we did not see that they actually had. And it's that mystery that is strung throughout the, um, the, the, the second movie. That would be cool if there was like the secret history of the Losers Club that we did not see that was running parallel here. Um, it's almost like this is the, the um, edited version of, of the, the story of the Losers Clubs as kids. Um, I, so that, I, I think, is, would probably be the solution to that, and I hope that that's the route that, that Muschietti takes because if this is it, I mean, if, if this is the story that they can't remember and we remember it because we just saw it, um, twice, three times, um, then, then it's, it's, it's going to be a lot of, let's get to the point. Let's get to the point. Once, once the, uh, we start watching the, the sequel and, uh, I don't know. Um, I, I just feel like I've been thinking about the, the sequel a lot now since I've, I've seen the movie and I, I just, I, I think that it needs to, to be a companion piece. Um, and be its own thing, um, and, and less the, the, the same thing again, um, if that makes any sense. I, I, I think that because this movie, now let's talk about the scares a little bit, I mean, because people, and I'll weigh in on this, I, I, and, and maybe it's subjective, I mean, two genres more than any other genre are, are subjective, and that's comedy and, and, and horror, if you think something's funny, you think something's funny. If you think something's scary, you think something's scary. And it has less to do with cerebral understanding and analysis and just has to do with primal reactions. But um, to me, it was always spooky in that Tim Burton kind of way, um, with the exception of, you know, like Georgie dying. But even then, I didn't think it was scary. I mean, they went there with it. It was certainly graphic, but to me, that, that wasn't scary. It, it wasn't even that unsettling. It's disturbing in concept, but I think the actualization of it because I, I, it never felt that his arm really was gone. It, 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 t it took me out of it. Um, so I felt it was spooky more than it was scary. And there was a celebratory nature in, in the scares that were occurring. You know, when the balloon pops and Pennywise is right there, I, you, you kind of jump and you, you giggle. And that's what happened in the audience. That's what happened. People screamed and then they laughed. And to me, there, there was a difference there. That is not necessarily scary. That is that that is that is a haunted house effect of of celebrating a quick fright, a quick scary, you know, a quick scare. Um, you know, it's it's a celebration 
of of being um, spooky. Um, it, it isn't designed to really get under your skin. So an example of a Stephen King movie that is supposed to get under your skin that does not celebrate being afraid. It simply goes for the jugular and it invades you and it makes you feel uncomfortable. That is The Shining. Um, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining does not say, hey, it's fun to be scared. It just scares the shit out of you and it sticks with you and it makes you feel like you're going insane and it makes you feel like you are claustrophobic and there are no jump scares just to make you jump and then laugh at the fact that you just jumped at something on the screen. It is it is haunting. It is claustrophobic. It is um, it is insanity. It is uh, it, it, it gets to you. Or maybe it's just me. Maybe it gets to me, and I'm, I shouldn't be speaking for how it, 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 it affects you. But that is the difference here, I, I, I believe, when some people are talking about whether or not it's scary. You know, if you find The Shining scary, to, to be truly, truly scary, then I don't think that you can really call this movie scary on the same level. But that's not necessarily what Muschietti was going for. He wasn't trying to make something along the lines of um, this dread-filled tale, the way that The Shining is full of dread. I mean, that's that wasn't the point. He had a different intent, and his intent was to capture this this childhood sense of fear. Now, he caught the, 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 the childhood reality of adults disappointing us at every turn very, very well with the interactions with the adults and the kids, and that, I would say, is the true horror of this chapter. Um, that is the, the the true sticking point and the thing that really, really sticks with you. So, I mean, just the, the look of of disappointment and fear and, and hurt and pain on Bev's face with her father and the look of embarrassment on, on the face of Eddie with his mother and the look of, of pain and, and quiet withdrawal from, from Bill when he looks at his father, you know, so... This is the true horror of it. Everything else is just kind of spooky fun, and it's the celebratory nature of the things that go bump in the night that we as children, when we were children, loved about Halloween and 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 and, and monster movies, and that that celebration is there in this child's story. Now, this is why I think the sequel needs to be different, because the scares in this movie reflects the things that we find scary as children. And the things that we find scary as children, we might not necessarily find scary as adults. I believe that because this movie reflected those childhood scares, I believe that the sequel needs to reflect adult fears. Um, I, 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 I would love to see it be more existential in its terror. Um, and I just don't mean from a cosmic, yes, I know it's going to go cosmic. So I, I believe questions of mortality and a, um, and, and musings on the, the, just the finite nature of our lifespans and the, you know, the, the fact that we will all die and the, the, the possibility of, uh, no afterlife. I mean, I, I believe that. These are things that need to be explored. The, 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 the fact that we don't realize all of our dreams, that, that we live unfulfilled lives. Hey, welcome to the Stephen King cast where I talk about all the happy stuff. But I mean, it, it, I think that that's the kind of fear 
um, and the terror and the, the the content that that should be addressed in 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 the uh, in the sequel. In I always talk about comic books um, when I talk about uh, when I talk about um, anything really. So I mean the. Grant Morrison, famed comic book writer, um, wrote a, a, a series of, of comic books all threaded in and out of each other um, called uh, Seven Soldiers uh, back in the, the earlier 2000s. And one of them, um, there was a four, they were all four-issue miniseries and they were bookended by, by two um, one-shots. One kicked it off, and then the last one brought all of the the different seven books. Um, so seven. So there's twenty eight. Um, um, there there's twenty eight uh, issues. Um, actually thirty issues. Um, but the twenty eight issues bookended by by one shots. And um, there was one four issue miniseries um, called uh, the Guardian or the the Manhattan Guardian. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 the Manhattan Guardian. Anyway, so the Manhattan Guardian. Um, to make a long story short, there is one issue that is all about these 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 kids, these um, newsies, basically, and uh, it it shows what happens to these these adventurers, these adventurers, these kid adventurers as uh, as they grow up, and um, it, it's tragic uh, what what happens to them, and it. Grant Morrison is able to just get to the heart of the just the, the loss of possibility um, and how as a child you think that your future is open and endless and as you head into adulthood you realize that it is not some endless field it's a closed in backyard um, and there's only so much room that you're actually going to be able to explore and um so again, welcome to the Stephen King cast. Uh, but I mean, I, I think that that is the the type of thing that that's clearly what Stephen King was able to get across so well. Just the the, the musings on adulthood um, and the, the the failings of of infinite possibility and being able to accept who you are and being able to accept the life that you live. And these are true aspects to life that I feel need to be explored in, in the sequel. Um, so that is just, uh, that, that's what I would like to see. That's what I would like to see, um, in the sequel, because look, if we just get retreads of our, our monsters here, if we just get little Georgie again, or we get the, the, the painting monster again, um, or, or, you know, I mean, of course we're going to get the clown, but, um, you know, if, if we get uh, the leper, like, if we just get the uh, the recreations of the monsters that we saw the first time, I don't care. Uh, we, we've seen our characters face off against these interpretations, these fears. En- enough. We, we need to see what speaks to these characters as adults to scare them. Um, so that, uh, th- that to me is what I would be looking for. I'm actually looking for a completely different movie than what this movie was. Not that there's anything wrong with this movie, this was this deserves all of the praise that's getting. I just think that a movie about adults should reflect adult fears. Um, so I, I I've talked about the um the, the whether it's spooky whether it's scary um I, one thing that I, I did not talk about um you know I, I I thought that definitely was spooky. There was a lot of jump scares. However, when Muschetti decides to go subtle, 
that really works and it sticks with me. So there's two things that he does in this movie very, very well um, that I did not notice the first time around. I didn't even notice. It's not that I noticed the second time around. It was, it was pointed out on the internet to me and I'm, I'm very enamored with his abilities to do this. One, so for those of you who did not notice this, when Ben is first in the library and he is given the book on Derry's history, don't watch Ben during that scene. Just look behind Ben. It, I just got goosebumps. You see what you think is the librarian at first, just standing behind him, crouched down in anticipation, just reveling in what he's reading. She's out of focus. It is very unsettling once you realize that it's there. Um, it's that uh, same kind of just ugh, kind of feeling that you get, kind of like when you watch Three Men and a Baby when Ted Danson walks across the, the screen and you see the, the, the shotgun and he walks back across the screen and you see the boy. Once you know it's there, um, it is very, very unsettling. And uh, so that scene is one of them. Another one is the fact that it keeps cutting to the adults in Derry and um, it doesn't really focus on it too much, but um, they're, they're watching this children's television show and it is just... You can tell that it's it's Pennywise just constantly brainwashing them, and the more you think about it, um, the, the 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 more unsettling it is to to think that he he can be that overt, um, and the um, parents can be that, or the adults can can be that suggested or, or, or gullible or, or open to suggestion and you know the, the fact that we kind of don't pay attention to what's on the screen and we can be used through what's on the screen clearly even those was set um, in the 1980s very much um, speaks to our current day um, with the fact that we are on our cell phones and we are in front of television screens and computer screens all the time. The, the idea that we can be so easily brainwashed by what is on a screen um, is a very, very current fear. So he, those two things shows me that um, he can definitely get to those more adult, subtle, deeper scares than just the jump scares. Um, but I would say that based on the effectiveness um, and popularity and critical success and financial success of this movie, I'd imagine that we're going to get very much um, the same types of scares. That would be my bet. So if he, you know, I think it would be a bold move to move away from this and to move towards a, a deeper dread. Um, and like I said, those more existential fears and the more social commentary um, I, I believe that that would be a sign of some very confident um, studio involvement and some very confident filmmaking, um, director filmmaking. And Muschietti's got the chops. He has the chops. He has what it takes. I would just like to see, um, I would like to see that uh, come to fruition. So I guess to, to wrap up, um, and I've been talking about it for an hour now, guys, that's great. Um, just to wrap up, I, I, I really enjoy this movie. Um, I, I don't know where we would land if I was to do a um, another top ten of Stephen Cook, Stephen King adaptations. Uh, this one I, I I'm very curious to see, you know how how time um, honors it. If it does get bumped up to that number one spot, if it is in the number in in the in the top five or the top three, um, certainly it, it was fun to just watch the the kids again and, and to watch Skarsgård again and just revel in, in how much fun he's having in this role and 
noticing things that I don't think that I noticed the first time around, like how he drooled and he's just great. He's great in this role all time. He's an all timer now. I mean, in, in the limited screen time that he has, he established himself as a all time on screen villain. Um, and I haven't seen much of it yet, but just wait guys, just wait. I guarantee you that you're going to start to see a slew of Bill Skarsgård, uh, Pennywise impressions because he gives a very definitive performance and he, he's doing some very memorable things with his voice that I, I think that we're going to start to see aped and parodied a lot. Uh, um, Saturday Night Live comes back very soon. Does it come back tonight? I wouldn't be surprised if we have an it parody um, with a with a Skarsgård impersonation. Um, I, I think that we're going to start to see that very, very soon, which is always the sign um, of, of something just latching on to pop culture consciousness um, that will endure throughout the decades. So it, uh, I loved it. I loved it the first time. I loved it the second time. I do have issues um, structurally um, with the third act of this time that, that really presented itself. Um, but it is what it is. It doesn't take away from the heart of the movie, which is definitely the kids and the relationships and Muschietti's ability to, to craft a scene and any issues that I might have with the fact that it doesn't necessarily quote unquote scare me that it has nothing to do with the talent, um, behind it because that all has to do with intent. You know, this movie is exactly what Andy Muschietti intended it to be, you know, and it's a perfect, um, realization of of the director's intent um so i mean i i have nothing but praise nothing but praise for this movie nothing but praise for the actors and the cinematography i my only i guess the biggest issue that i would have is the the reliance on the cgi but it is 2017 that is the world that we live in um okay guys so with all of that said um i am going to now um Uh, go through some listener emails. Um, so keep the emails coming, guys. You know I can't do it without you. Uh, so if you have uh, any thoughts on it um, or my thoughts on it, write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. So up first, we have Chris who writes, Hello, I'm a big fan of your show and I'm looking forward to your assessment of it. I'm especially eager to hear your thoughts on the town they used for dairy, Port Hope, Ontario. Port Hope happens to be my hometown. I was beside myself when they were filming here last summer. All the scenes downtown Derry, outside the library, in the theater lobby, in the pharmacy, behind Bev's place, and the town park center with Paul Bunyan. This includes the aerial shots and the scenes of the losers riding their bikes around town. The house on Niebolt Street was in Oshawa, Ontario. I grew up a Stephen King fan, but reading it was always too daunting. The stand was my it. That is until it started filming right around the corner. Connecting my childhood memories, growing up in Port Hope in the streets of the losers to the streets of the losers traveled in Derry while recently reading the novel was an incredibly personal experience that was truly unique and moving. I'm going to interject. I can only imagine. That is incredible. Um, so, you know, Chris, you know, congratulations. I mean, I think that you, like you said, I think that you really do have a, um, a unique uh, take on, on it. And, you know, Chris continues here it for whatever reason, um, if for whatever reason you need an insider in Port Hope, considering chapter two is all but scheduled to shoot, let me know. 
Chris and Port Hope. Chris, um, please keep me updated um, uh, as as they start filming. Um, so just write in at Stephen King Cast at yahoo.com uh, to, to let me know if you get any scoops or any good picks, um, and I'll definitely share it. Um, I'll share any pictures on Instagram and Twitter, and I will share any anything that you need to share with the world. Um, Stephen King Cast will will be. Uh, will be your voice. So thank you. And Dave writes, uh, It is really too big for even two movies and should be developed to a series to do the source material justice. The pilot episode could focus on Georgie and the paper boat as well as introducing the town and the losers club. Following installments could take the time to build the characters and flesh out their backstories, all the while teasing Pennywise and the history of Derry a la Lost. I'm going to interject. As I record this, um, it is September 23rd. Uh, 2017, 13 years ago, guys, 13 years ago on this date, uh, Lost premiered and changed television. So I know, I know people talk about that ending. The ending became a joke, I think for all of the wrong reasons. Um, I do believe that history is going to be a lot kinder to Lost. I think that within the next 10 years, there is going to be you know, everything is cyclical. I think that the cycle is going to come back around to Lost. People are going to revisit it, um, and, and people will look back on it a lot more fondly, especially as the legend of the leftovers grow and the estimation of Damon Lindelof continues to grow. Um, but 13 years ago, on this date, Lost premiered and uh, changed how we tell stories on television, and it definitely changed my life. As a human being, this show changed my life. Um, so I definitely needed to, to throw that out there. So Dave continues. That being said, I think the film is very good. It is not perfect by any stretch, but definitely not a disappointment like the dark tower. I fully agree. The screenwriters and director did a nice job presenting the major themes and giving the story a modern flavor inside the limitations of a two hour and 15 minute runtime. Skarsgård interpretation of Pennywise and the focus of Beverly Marsh were the primary highlights of my first viewing. I'm anxious to see it again for a more complete assessment. So, Dave, it looks like you and I were very much on the same page. And, um, yeah, in this day and age, um, it's hard to argue that things won't be better in a television series. It, it really won't. Um, I, you know, I, I think that movies are now kind of becoming poems in a way. You have to get to the heart of something with a very limited amount of time, much the way that poems kind of need to get the truth and the heart of a subject um, much quicker than prose. So that's it, it's forcing um, filmmakers to, to, to have to be uh, very stylistic and abstract and symbolic in their approach in, in ways that I find very... <sighs> Very poignant and potent. Um, Will writes, Dear Constant Reader, I've been looking forward to the new It adaptation since the first teaser dropped earlier this year, and after catching a screener yesterday, September 9th, I was not disappointed. Is it a perfect one-to-one adaptation of the 1957-1958 portions of the novel? Of course not. The mere fact that they moved the time period forward by 30 years ruled that out. I do, however, think that they did justice to the overall spirit of the novel. It's hard to resist drawing comparisons between this and a certain other King adaptation that was released recently, but where the Dark Tower was a rushed, muddled mess, I felt that it streamlined the admittedly dense source material as necessary while doing it justice. We have to remember, after all, that even adjusting for the shift in time period, a straight adaptation of that half of the novel would probably be flirting with at least four hours worth of running time. 
If the Dark Hour represents uh, the drunken, half-hearted skimming of a Wikipedia summary, it demonstrates the work of creators who are familiar with the novel and try to accurately portray it while still adhering to the limitations of time, budget, etc. Were there things that I, as a fan of the novel, disliked about it? Of course! The abduction of Beverly seemed trite to me, but her active role in the subsequent battle did help to make up for that in my mind. The literal... I'm going to interject. Great point. And I love that it all comes down to the fact that Pennywise fails and he gets beaten because of his the miscalculation of being able to instill fear in Bev. That the the horror that she is subjected to and the real fear that her father, her father, could at any point actually rape her, that that is a legit fear in her mind. Anything else is not scary. That, to me, is such a great decision, and the look of fearlessness um, on her face when she, whenever she's around the clown is, is, is truly something that, that sticks with me. And when she just, she, she defeats him in the end. I mean, she's the one that just jams the thing down its throat, and it's so fulfilling in that moment, you know, that, that it takes the face of her father, and it is the stupidest thing that it could have done. Um, because in that moment, she just lashes out in rage, not fear, and is able to defeat him. You know, so yeah, Bill gives the killing blow, but really it's Bev. It's Bev in that moment that does it. So, um, anyway, uh, um, the, it, it, it did make help, help to make that up in my mind. The literal floating made me roll my eyes a little. Yep, and the throwaway line about the kids coming back down after Pennywise's defeat made me worry for a moment that they'd go the route of having the kids just be catatonic, coming back to life like Beverly after its influence wears off. I was glad, how weird to phrase it like that, that they were all well and truly dead. <laughs> to have these dozens of victims all turn out to be okay would severely lessen the monster's villainy in my eyes. I agree. I would have liked to have seen Mr. Keen be the one, as in the novel, spill the beans to Eddie about his meds being fake, I also would have liked to have seen Pennywise take additional forms, the werewolf, the mummy, the Rodan thing, etc., but those are probably more quibbles of a book fan more than anything else. It makes me wonder, though, if the kids from the 1950s were scared of the teenage werewolf and the mummy, what would scare the losers if we adjust for 30 more years of pop cultural baddies? Would it be fair to expect the filmmakers to buy the rights to show it taking the form of the alien Michael Myers Carpenter's version of the thing, etc.? Um, so I'm going to interject. I think I talked about this last week, but I... I I understand the rationale to avoid giving us pop culture recreations of the things that scare us from a pop cultural standpoint. However, part of the brilliance of Stephen King's novel is that it is a rumination and a celebration and a thesis of horror. It is the fictional counterpart to his nonfiction essay, Dance Macabre. And so much of it is rooted in his, in the truth of his childhood, and and the things that drew him to terror and drew him to the things that 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 are quote unquote scary, and the the the, the joy that we have in embracing the scary things, and in his case, it was I was a teenage werewolf. It was the 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 1950s movies of the, the things that, that came from above um, and, and outer space and the universal monsters. And those horror creatures and the sci-fi movies of the time, those were an integral part of Stephen King growing up. And they were 
fundamental aspects of of his storytelling sensibilities and it, it, it's wrapped up entirely in in what it was in in the book so to me i do believe that we did have a 1980s counterpart to the the iconic monsters of the 50s and prior to the 50s and i do believe that they were like um uh like, like uh will writes like like will says um you know, alien and the thing. Um, but I, I honestly do believe that we did live in a time where in the 1980s we had Freddy and we had Jason and we had Leatherface, we had Michael, we had Chucky, and we, we did have these characters. And and they were on a first-name basis. We were on a first-name basis with them. And I know that New Line Cinema owns the rights to at least two of them. And at least to have one character be a pop culture aficionado. If Richie was afraid of them, to me that would have made sense. And if that character goes into the the, the world of movies uh, as an adult, it would make sense to me. And it would be a natural trajectory for him to follow those fears into adulthood um, and, and be, be a movie star or be a comedian or, or whatever. But if that character was afraid not of clowns, which already we get a clown. We don't need him to be afraid of clowns. To me, what if he was afraid of? What if he was someone that went to the movies all the time? Like we saw the movies in the back. We saw we saw Freddy Krueger. We saw Nightmare on Elm Street. What if we saw Richie loving to go to the movies, but being afraid of going to the movies at the same time because of the things that he loved? That's was that was me. That was me as a kid. I loved Freddy Krueger, but I also had problems sleeping at night because of Freddy Krueger. And that, um, and and I would have loved to have seen that represented in this movie and it i think that i the more i think about it, the more it is a missed opportunity um to be a statement of pop culture and a reflection of pop culture and a reflection of the things that that made us um that that just sort of represented a period of a time period and um a reflection of fear and horror than than I think that we should have had Robert Englund make a cameo as Freddy Krueger in this movie, as a represent, as a, as a clown version of, of Freddy Krueger, and then have him be, then then have that character morph into Michael Myers and and Jason. I, I think that we are missing out um, by by having that. I think that I think that the movie kind of needed that um, because that did speak to childhood fears of the nineteen eighties. That was a big part of the 1980s. It was a big part. And it was represented in this movie in the background. But I think that it should have come into the foreground. Um, I have to say that I was surprised at the lack of the you'll float too during the Georgie Pennywise encounter at the beginning of the film, though the line does get its use as the film progresses. Incidentally, it was a bit surreal to hear Pennywise talk about popcorn being his favorite while I was sitting in the screening room filled with people, myself included, who were eating this stuff. Intentional part on the screenwriters, do you think? Absolutely. And which is there are there are reasons why this movie succeeds and it's decisions like that um, why this movie succeeds. Would it have been nice to see the smokehouse vision? Yes. Would it have been nice to see the slingshot and the silver slugs? Yes. Would it have been nice to have seen the ritual of Chud? Yes. Would it have been nice to have seen the turtle? Yes. As a fan of the novel, it would have been wonderful to see all of those things. But I also have to ask: Does the film work on its own? For me, yes. Absolutely. With regard to the last two elements I mentioned, we have to remember that both of the novel's story arcs end with the ritual and the battle inside the mind with it. Had they included the ritual, the spider, and the turtle here, it would have seemed repetitive, especially to the non-book reader moviegoers, if the second chapter ends the same way. Completely agree. 
Now, my gut tells me that we will see neither the Ritual nor the Turtle in the next installment, though I think that the Spider is still a possibility, but still worth keeping that in mind, I think. I'm going to interject. We are going to see the Ritual of the Chud, which is fantastic. The couple of shout-outs to the turtle do show the filmmakers were aware of it and wished to include it in some way, and I did appreciate it. If we're lucky, those Easter eggs may end up serving as foreshadowing when the sequel floats around. I thought that the performances were strong all around. I don't always like the child actor performances, but I love the losers. Finn Wolfhard is great, of course, and I think that Sophia Lillis has great, great things ahead of her. Bill Skarsgård brought a definite creepiness to his portrayal. Less affably evil monster clown and more eldritch abomination trying its damnedest to pretend to be human. I know the 1990 miniseries mostly by reputation. I've seen a few scenes, but I've yet to sit down and watch the whole thing. I do like what I've seen of Curry's portrayal, though, and I think that Scar Cigar more than fills his shoes. I also like that music. Enough of a fixture of King's novels to be considered its own Kingism had an appreciable presence here as well. It's obvious that King loves his rock and roll, as do I, and it was good to see the filmmakers recognize that, adjusting to the specific songs as needed in the 1980s. I'm going to interject. I didn't talk about the apocalyptic rock fight, a highlight of this movie. That is so fun. And watching the crowd, the crowd went nuts during that scene when Richie screams out rock war. It is awesome. When the, the use of the slow-mo, just the, the victory of, of the kids, all of it, the, the music, it is, it is great. Um, you know, in, in the book, it's less fun. I mean, it's called the apocalyptic rock fight. I mean, there is a sense of like, this is, you know, this is like nukes being launched at each other and there is a terror there, but here is just like fun. It was great. It was a great aspect of, of the movie. All in all, I'd call this a solid four out of five for me. My issues with the film can't be dismissed, but they weren't such that I couldn't enjoy the movie. If the Dark Tower is an example of how to do an adaptation poorly, it is an example of how to do one well. To me, it comes down to this. Absent of any knowledge of the source material, the Dark Tower explodes on impact, but it makes me want to return to the novel, even though it's only been four and a half months since I read it. I await It, Chapter 2, as eagerly as I await hearing your thoughts and your listeners. All the best, Will. Will, um, that is a really well thought out um, uh, examination of this movie. A lot of your viewpoints mirror my own, and some issues that I have, I, I kind of am walking back now, because you're right, I mean, it stands on its own. If I didn't know what the book was and I just watched it, I probably would not even, I probably wouldn't have issues. I probably would just go along for the ride. Um, which at the end of the day, that's just what Muschietti has to do. And he did it well. So uh, thank you for writing that. It, it makes me, it, I just, I, I kind of have issues with me having issues with the movie because the movie is so good, you know, and uh, an email like that helps temper um, those issues that I have. Then Quinn writes, Dear Mr. Stephen Kingcast, It's been a long time since I've written in, but I promise I've still been listening to all the episodes. Well, thank you. Anyways, the It movie. I was first in line at the theater. I wore my It shirt. And the day before the movie, my dad bought a red balloon and put it in my room without me knowing. Your dad should win an award. He sounds like a good guy. Needless to say, I walked into that theater sporting wood. Beep, beep, Quinn. Uh, but when I left, I was borderly, borderline depressed. Gonna interject. Um, I do. I did. I really loved that beep beep Richie moment. I, I wasn't... And I gotta say that that scene with the clown, that little clown cathedral room, um, I, uh, 
the crowd was going nuts. The crowd was going insane um, with all of the clowns. And, um, I mean, Finn Wolfhard rocks that scene. He's great. And the moment where Skarsgård jumps out and it zooms in on him and there is, like, the, the, the music swells to this moment of silence and there's a pause and he says, beep, beep, Richie. That is such what it, it's one of those celebratory fanfic um, fanboy moments. You know what I mean? That That is such a shout out. Um, but, um, the lack of beep, beep, Richie, um, throughout the movie, the fact that they never said that, that there was no, uh, you know, no example of their own language, um, or no characteristics of their friendship like that. It's going to make the sequel less impactful because they won't be able to repeat that and invoke their childhood. I feel. Um, I, I think that that was a missed opportunity um, by by having the, the characters just say beep beep Richie. Unless, hey, you actually you know, you know what? Whoever they get as adult Richie, and I hope that's Bill Hader, I really hope he continues to go for high fives. I hope he makes bad jokes and goes for high fives. That That is a good way of actually getting in on that that that, that connection, that, that connective tissue from one movie to the next. Okay, um, and up next, uh, let's see, Quinn continues, and he says, When I saw It ruthlessly turn into a crazy, many-teeth monster and saw through, Georgie's, saw through Georgie's arm like it was nothing, I legitimately felt bad for Georgie as he jumped backwards and tried to crawl away crying. It was incredibly effective and one of the greatest scenes I've ever watched in any movie. Also, I love the character work, especially Beverly. When she cuts off her hair after feeling over-sexualized by men, I really felt for her and I like the fact that right after her dad makes her feel uncomfortable by buying tampons the blood in the bathroom scene happens totally true this symbolizes her fear of womanhood very well I don't know if you mentioned it in your it book review that was a long time ago but I think this is the first time I realized why Beverly saw the blood instead of a male character absolutely right Aside from a few good scary scenes, the brutal Henry Bowers carving an H on Ben scene and the great chemistry between characters, especially Richie and Eddie, the movie fell apart for me. Number one, it felt even less of a threat in this movie than in the miniseries. I do agree with that. He had plenty of chances to kill them, but just because they were main characters, he would literally disappear at the last second or a door would open or some such bullshit. I'm going to interject. This can be explained in the sequel. I hope that the adult characters actually ask that question. And I hope that they ask themselves, like, why did they survive? And why did Betty Ripson die? Why did Patrick Hockstetter die? Why did Georgie Dembro die? Why did those characters, why were they able to get pulled away? And why did we live? I really hope that they have that conversation. Because if they start to have that conversation and they start to get to the heart of it, that there is a magic that was generated by the seven of them, that maybe the it knew that on some level it, it couldn't quite penetrate them, it couldn't quite get through to them, that there was another cosmic buffer standing in between the kid's way and the clown's way. Again, much like what I said about Mike before, a sequel could go a long way in explaining that and just blowing away any criticisms of that if they introduce the turtle, if they introduce the magic, if they introduce the the, the concept of, of Ka-Tet and that's what the, the strength, that's where their strength is derived from, that together as a group they can can 
counteract the, the evil effects of this clown. So I'm hoping that the sequel is able to, to, to rectify these, these concerns, and I do share those concerns. Number two, Quinn continues, characters made stupid decisions. They went into the house on Kneebolt Street unarmed and then decided to fucking split up when they heard scary noises and walk right into danger, again, unarmed. I completely agree. Number three, the most important theme of the novel was not present. The book is about how the only reason they can hurt it is because they believe they can. They use the silver slug in the slingshot because they believe that silver hurts monsters. They use the placebo medicine in the inhaler because Eddie believes it helps him. Bill uses his, thrusts his fists against the post and still insists he sees the ghosts, stuttering phrase because he has to overcome a weakness with it, etc. The book was all about power and where it comes from, which is within us. The only thing that made sense was Mike learning when it takes to kill the sheep with the gun, but they hardly touched upon that at all. Mostly... They hurt this supposedly immortal being by stabbing fence posts in it and hitting it with a baseball bat. They killed it with regular weapons instead of meaningful items, turning it into any other Hollywood monster and not just the unique it that I know. It's like the filmmakers missed the thrust of the novel, and I do echo much of that sentiment. I do believe that this novel does not have the this is battery acid, you slime moment. It doesn't have the the slingshot silver slugs moment. Um, and I do believe that it, it, it suffers from a, a lack of... It goes back, like I said. The, the, the novel is about the, the, the magic of childhood and the power of imagination and the fact that the clown is imagination corrupted and it is the, the child's purity and the, the the magic of the childhood's purity that is able to combat um that evil and uh we don't have that here um so it's going to make it and that is the challenge of being an adult being able to tap into that so i mean you can read into so much about this i mean that the the, the, the magic with stephen king it never left him which is why he is the prolific author that he is he's able to create these magical worlds and these magical stories that are blowing up at the box office and will continue on long after he's dead. That is magic, ladies and gentlemen. That is ma- like to take something that does not exist, that exists only as an intangible concept in your mind, and to be able to share that as something literal, something concrete, and 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 spread it to others so that it will exist after you die. That is magic. Okay, magic exists. And Stephen King is a wonderful magician, and the novel, uh, the the movie doesn't really touch upon that, which is a, a missed opportunity. Number four, it didn't shape shift into anything cool. It was only the clown, and then a variety of deformed humanoid figures: zombies, lepers, a burnt kid, uh, admittedly creepy girl, and that was about it. Number five, the pacing needed work. Sometimes uh, they crammed in scare after scare almost randomly instead of pacing them out more evenly. Number six. The movie started to feel like an adaptation of a Goosebumps book instead of a Stephen King one. Again, this goes back to my first point about them never being in any real danger. Beverly is kidnapped, but for some reason, not killed? Or maybe she is killed, but brought back with a kiss? Mm, Okay. And when It is biting Stan's face, but then runs away because they shine a flashlight at it? (laughs) They should have grown some balls and just killed one of the kids. That would have been crazy and unexpected change that I would have welcomed, not this false sense of being in danger. Number seven, that ridiculous dancing scene that I'm sure will become a meme. Yeah, I didn't touch upon that. I don't like it. I don't like that scene. Um, maybe others do. I don't like it. 
Number eight, when it died or went into early hibernation, I guess, it awkwardly says, fear. Why? (laughs) What purpose did that serve? And although in the book offers to make them rich and successful if they let it live, it never came off as a sniveling little bee actually breaking down and talking to them as if it were human too, as it did in this movie. I kind of think that it well no no it does it's not pleading it does give them that ultimatum there but it's not pleading um and i do love that about stephen king how his villains always just wind up just being cowards at the end um and that's what i like about henry um as a as a villain in the book henry is always kind of bumbling you know he he is an intimidating figure but gets kicked in the nuts and uh, kind of beaten by Ben after, you know, he's carving, you know, the, the H into, into Ben's stomach. And that is kind of recreated here um, when when the kid playing him, you know, gets the wind kicked out of him and he goes rolling down the hill and he's always talking like a Christian Bale Batman voice and it's never kind of authentic. So I kind of struggle. I do have issues with the, 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 the Henry character here. Like, to me, he never has the menace of Henry through the kid's perspective because we, we get the one-two punch of Henry in the book of through the kid's perspective where he is awful, but we also get him more from an objective standpoint where he's kind of buffoonish. Um, here, to me, he's just less than what he could be. And I feel like even if, if they went with Owen Teague and had him be just a cartoonish menace, I think that it would have worked. Or if we got him as the buffoonish um, interpretation, I think that it would have worked. And and we kind of got in the middle, and to me, it didn't work as much. Anyway, um, it was more disappointing than The Dark Tower because I expected The Dark Tower to suck, which it did, but I had high hopes for it, and it hugely disappointed me. It's hard to believe that uh, the Rotten Tomatoes score is an 88. I would have given it a 40, and then after reconsidering the strong first few scenes would have sympathetically bumped it up to a 50. I hope the sequel learns from its mistakes, but considering that it has such a high score and is basically being deemed perfect, I know they'll follow the exact same formula. Sigh. Quinn. Um, so Quinn, I mean, you you definitely did not like it. Um, I, I liked it a lot more than you did, although you and I share a lot of the same issues. Um, it's, I, I just don't think that the issues um, weighed as much um, with me as they did for you. Um, and then we have... A uh, fellow Stephen King podcast host of uh, Tower Junkies. So, guys, if you, when you are done listening here, head on over and support another member of our larger quartet, Tower Junkies. Um, and Matt from the Tower Junkies writes, "Hey, constant reader, I've been a long time listener and have made it a routine to listen to your podcast every every Stephen King book I finish. I saw it yesterday afternoon with a group of people, and we all really enjoyed it. I love the depiction of dairy and found myself really wanting to live in that world." As morbid as that may sound, I love the filmmakers. I think they really captured the heart of the town of Derry and the Losers Club themselves. Bev was incredibly charming, and the chemistry between her and the Losers Club was really sweet. The friendship in the quarry scene felt so genuine and really tapped into my nostalgia. I liked Bill Skarsgård's performance quite a bit and was shocked at how small the budget was, $35 million. I've seen some people online have issues with CGI, guilty, but I felt like they really utilized the budget well. As much as, well, they're going to have a much bigger budget next time around. As much as I love the story and the presentation, as far as it as a horror movie is concerned, I didn't find it particularly scary. The set pieces were done well and were suspenseful. The Nybolt Street sequence was incredible, but I didn't expect experience much fear throughout the mirror of the movie, and that's something that I mirror. It didn't detract from the experience for me, but I wonder if other people had the same thought. Can't wait to hear your review. Um, 
So, Matt, thank you uh, for writing in, and thank you for sharing Stephen King thoughts um, into the multiverse a la podcasts. I think we podcasters need to stick together. Um, Matt, uh, let's see, so that was Matt. Um, So, guys, head on over to TowerJunkiesPod.com, a Stephen King Dark Tower podcast. Then we have Carl, who writes, Hi again, constant reader. Hi again, Carl. Let me just say that it's great to have you back, and your absence, short as it was, was surely felt. Thank you. Anyways, on to my thoughts. On the surface, I love this movie. I thought it was genuinely well-made and a lot of fun. However, as an adaptation, I liken it more to Kubrick's The Shining. While standing fine on its own, I don't think that the book was given the dot 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 respect it deserves. While it is leaps and bounds better than the miniseries, some things just came across as shallow. No barons, no thank you. And the use of CGI seemed to overutilize and ill-advise the most egregious of this coming only a few short minutes into the film. Pennywise seemed a bit underutilized as well, but despite my complaints and bugaboos, I still have to say that the movie was an 8 out of 10 for me, based solely on the movie and not as an adaptation. I suppose that's a good thing. If it was word for word like King's novel, wouldn't that bore us all? And that, that is the balance between adap- you know making adaptations. How much do you... Treat the source material um, as as sacred text, and how much do you you make uh, adaptations? Um, I wonder if the issues that I have, and the issues with some people here have, um, if time and and the distance that we have, we'll be able to just embrace the movie as a movie more. I don't know. We'll find out. Long days and pleasant nights from Carl. Thank you, Carl. And Sandy writes, "Good day, constant reader." Um. So my name is Sandy, and I write from sunny Canberra, Australia. I hope I pronounced that right. My friend Emma and I have been listening to your podcast for almost a year now, and since the start of last year, have been working our way through all of Stephen King's movies. We can call our marathons Every King. <laughs> I like that. Um, so, Sandy, thank you. I have a couple Australia listeners, um, Australian listeners. And uh, I just a quick note. Um, legitimately, there isn't a day that goes by where my wife does not uh, tell me that we have to move to Australia. Uh, so whenever I do have interactions with people from Australia, I always wonder, will we be interacting in person someday um, if I make my wife's dreams come true? So uh, Sandy continues, closely followed by uh, The Dark Tower, Duma Key, Under the Dome, Green Mile, Joyland, The Regulators, and The Stand, both of us maintain it as our favorite King book, minus the... Ew, why Steven scene? And we were so excited to see it on Friday night. We both thoroughly enjoyed it. Shameless plug, Emma is an artist and actually painted a scene of the Bowers gang. It's amazing. And if you like it, you can check it out on her Instagram, Emma Falconer Art. I have not checked it out yet, but I definitely will. But listeners, head on over to Emma Falconer Art. We're both holding our breath for announcements, RE, green lighting, casting, and gossip for part two. It just seems so far away. Anyway... I, I don't know if it's going to be as far away as we think so. I know that Andy Muschietti and New Line Cinema are going to strike while the iron is hot and to make sure that they're able to film these kid scenes while these kids are still kids because they are right now at that moment in their lives where they're going to age very, very quickly. A la Walt in the show Lost, which premiered 13 years ago on this very day. Anyway, in anticipation of your review, the two of us have talked about our likes and dislikes of the film, and I wanted to chuck them your way and see whether you agree or disagree with any of them. Overall, I loved it! There was a perfect balance of supernatural horror with the focus of friendship, which is what I loved about the book. 
The cast was brilliant, parents included. Bill Skarsgård brought a childish vulnerability to Pennywise that was just beautiful. I'm not going to lie, I personally think that he was better than Tim Curry, but then again, he was always Dr. Frankenfurter, the Cardinal, and Rooster to me before he was Pennywise. Likes. The start when Georgie was afraid to go into the basement to get the paraffin was so good. Straight out of the book brought tears to my eyes. No, OMG, why Steven? Scene. Just a group hug. Phew. They changed the monsters, but for the better. See also dislikes. I particularly like the werewolf hands, but I think it would have been enhanced if perhaps Teen Wolf was playing at the cinema and was referenced either by Richie going to see it or being advertised at the cinema. I'm going to jump. I'm going to piggyback on that. Not only would that have been appropriate, but um, like I said, uh, I think when I reviewed the, the It uh, novel in the three parts, I, I mentioned that they could very easily just utilize Thriller was such a huge part. It's still a huge part of our culture, but in the 80s, it was everything. Um, that would have been very effective. Holy cow, Beverly's bloody bathroom scene was freaking epic. Um, it was it was epic. It's, it works. I think that it works um, because it is so over the top. Um, as I said in my last review, it uh, invokes Nightmare on Elm Street uh, Freddy moments. It's definitely a Nightmare on Elm Street set piece. Just even the way that the, the hair looks as it wraps around her wrists and her neck. Um, but the blood is so over the top, it's almost a parody. Um, but Sophia Lillis's reaction, again, I watched it, and I just watched her reaction of her in the corner, her wide eyes, her inability to speak. It's powerful. She's got some serious acting chops. Um, she was conveying so much emotions. Speaking of which... So like I said earlier with Eddie, when there's a scene of him, it cuts to him very quickly and the actor, the young actor is just, he, he, he kind of sobs for a second in his car. It just works so well. Um, the scene where she is wearing Mr. Keene's glasses and it's like, ugh, so just eerie and gross and grody and disgusting. There is a scene when he turns his back, there is a look that goes over her face. It is, it is so quick and it's loaded um, and I don't know, it's a, it's, it's a look that is based on a feeling that I will never know, um, as a guy, um, so I can't really mansplain it, but I assume it is just, like, a, a look, like, that's disgust and revulsion and sadness that this is what she has to do, this is the effect that she can have, um, disappointment in adults like there's just so much there um in this one one little look that she makes it's so potent um and then uh sandy continues uh giant pennywise jumping out of the projector screen i nearly shot myself that great scene that that bait that garage scene is awesome i went to the bathroom um during the drive-in because I had seen it pre I really had to go to the bathroom. Um, and because I had seen so much of that scene already in the trailer and I knew what was going to happen, I made myself go to the bathroom then and make myself go to the bathroom. I left the car to go to the bathroom, um, to, yeah, to go to the bathroom. I don't know why I'm continuing talking about this, but I, I made the decision to leave there because I knew that what was going to happen in that scene. So I was very excited to actually sit in the theater and watch that scene play out. And, even though I knew what was going to happen, even though so much of it is in the trailer, man, that is a highlight of the film. That is such a good scene. 
The kids' reactions are great. This is the first time they're actually coming really face-to-face with it. This is them them as a group and it as a monster facing off against each other for the first time and him showing them what they're really dealing with and the way he pops. It is a great, great scene. So, you know, I, I kind of was down on the special effects before in some cases, but this is a great use of CGI. I mean, just how large he looks and the teeth. It is very effective. It is very, very well done. It is both legitimately scary there is terror and there is tension and there is menace in that scene, but it's also that celebratory spooky fun that um, I talked about earlier as well. Um, Richie in the Room of Clowns was so good and then jumps up Pennywise, beep, beep, Richie. OMG was the most awesome thing in the world in my opinion. Um, creep factor, one billion. Pennywise nearly changing the spider, but not all the way. It was so freaking cool. The Deadlights, wow, yeah, way better than the 1990 miniseries. The kids floating in Pennywise's lair, so freaking cool. Henny Bowers' gang was brilliantly cast, but I would love to see more of them. I would like to have seen more of them. So many Easter eggs. The the kids wear t-shirts that relate to other kid uh, SK books. Um, I did see Eddie wearing what I believed it looked like an evil car, which I assume was Christine. I did not see the Dark Tower or Dreamcatcher. I did not see that. I did see a Tracker Brothers Depot t-shirt that Bill was wearing that I liked. Um, Sandy, write back in, or other listeners, write back in and tell me what I missed, because I definitely want to know that. Um, But continued, uh, she continues, there's a small clown dressed up as Tim Curry's Pennywise, but it's difficult to pick because it's quite dark in that scene. So as Richie is heading towards the casket um, in that clown room, um, to the left by the casket, um, it is the the Tim Curry Pennywise clown. When Eddie breaks his arm and it's super graphic, I nearly spewed, but it was excellent. LOL. His mum is such a cow. Dislikes. I didn't like that you didn't see Pennywise changing into the monsters that terrorized the kids. For instance, Eddie's leopard didn't really hit home for me. He just seemed to be another junkie squatting in the house on Nybolt Street, not Pennywise. Um, to piggyback on that, I would have kind of like to see at some point you do see in in the book this mashup of the clown and the 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 iterations that it takes of the monsters so i would have liked to have seen after a certain point the the um the leper with the like puff balloons on it or the the jingle jangles from from this interpretation of pennywise some sort of mashup between these monsters and and the clown Patrick Hockstetter's death uh, death was pretty lame, even though it was spooky for those who didn't know the books. I felt so let down. Um, I agree. Uh, his death in the book was disgustingly epic. They should have used it. Nothing like people throwing up in the cinema as proof of a good film. I wasn't really sold on Mike's backstory and the fact they gave him a bolt to uh, use to kill livestock for butchery, which he used to feed Pennywise, was irrelevant and net unnecessary. Totally detracted from the outcome of the film. They should have used the slugs. See how it should have ended. All of the other child deaths were off screen. The kids were all just missing. This sucked. Where was Eddie? Where was Betty? The only death we saw was Georgie, and as gruesome as it was, it shouldn't have stopped with just that one. I agree. Um, I think that we should have seen more more deaths. I think that they did a really good job at establishing that this was a town that was rocked by missing children um, and presumed dead. Uh, the, the, the amount of uh, missing child posters was very well done. We saw townspeople putting new posters up. The fact that Betty Ripsom's was, uh, poster was placed um, behind Patrick Hockstetter was very unsettling. 
very disturbing, just sad. Um, the, remember the curfew. So don't get me wrong. They, Muschietti does a great job establishing the, the threat of this town. I just really would have liked to have seen uh, another kid or two um, get got by, by it. Um, okay, basically everything between Beverly getting kidnapped and the group hug... Um, Beverly, they made her the damsel in distress and made me furious. Not only is this a terrible trope, but it is exactly what happens to Audra 27 years later, so now I can't help but wonder why the hell they plan to do with her in the sequel. See how it should have ended. <laughs> uh, making Beverly a helpless girl who needed rescuing not only pissed me off no end because the assumption that women were weak and always need to be saved because they can't do it themselves, but wasted her amazing arc where discovers that she is more than just a sex object. It was important for me that she go through this journey, but she did not. They totally took away the best parts of her story and just made her weak. And then after he captured her and caught her in the deadlights, he just leaves her and walks away. WTF. Leading in from that, the rest of the kids also go through an arc where they find strength in their weaknesses and use this to stamp to Pennywise, defeating it in the sewers in the 1960s, which then leads to my next effing point. Pennywise's death was total crap. They beat it with bloody sticks. Believable if Pennywise was human, but it's not. Pennywise is a supernatural being who was all-powerful. All he had to do was swipe out with them with those half-spider legs, and he would have got them. This was super dumb, and I absolutely, I was absolutely let down angry by the sloppy writing. See how it should have ended. Also, is Henry Bowers dead? They throw him down the well. If he's dead, it also really changed the sequel. But if he isn't, and Michael C. Hall isn't cast, then I might have a little sulk how it should have ended. The Silver Slugs. This is why I believe having a werewolf reference in the story was important. Instead of, I was a teenage werewolf. Teen Wolf! Okay, so now I was the second person to go with Teen Wolf and not Thriller. Um, could have been used as a relevant reference, albeit a quirky one given the movie was a comedy, which I believe would have appealed to a 1986 Richie in particular. Sandy, you and I are on the same page. I'm feeling the wavelength here. The kids were old enough that they would have seen it and deduced that to kill a monster. They could try silver bullets, which would be their motivation for melting down Ben's two silver dollars and making a couple slugs. Beverly the Marksman, after making their slugs like in the book because they're totally jack of being terrorized, they finally find Georgie dead, and while Bill is grieving for his dead brother, who is all messed up and rotted, there seriously needed to be a little more gross out in this film, and everyone's distracted. Pennywise appears, and a struggle ensues. Beverly takes a shot, misses the first slug, disappears down a hole, or whatever. The Deadlights. Bill should have been the one caught in the Deadlights instead of Beverly. It also shows that the strong leader of the group can also be weak, considered a target in cut-off-the-head kind of way. He starts mumbling some shit about the turtle, and he thrusts his fist against the post in a non-sexual, nonsensical, disjointed way while he's hypnotized. Just random hypnotic mumbling to those who haven't read the books, but Easter eggs for those of us who have. Pennywise's death. While Bill is floating in the deadlights, Pennywise attacks the other kids. They scuffle a bit. It looks like he's going to win, but after dropping out and losing the second and only remaining slug, Beverly, Beverly finally desperately takes an aim and hits Pennywise smack in the center of the face. His face starts to crumble and he disappears down the hole to die, instead of just retreating like he did in the movie. Fear? No, it was lame. Okay, so we're starting to get a consensus there with the ending. There should have been a post credit scene. After the group hug and get out of the sewer and make their blood pack in the barrens, which was awesome, the following should have happened. Fade to back. Fade to black. Keek uh, cast credits, i.e. the kids and Bill. Title, Stephen King's It. Open scene, Jackson Street. Almost identical to Georgie coming out at the start of the film. Subtitle, 2017. 
A boy about Georgie's age steps out of his house in a yellow slicker. He looks down the street with a smile and places a remote control speedboat in a swollen gutter and runs after it as it zooms down the stormwater. He dodges under two yellow safety barricades, not hitting his head, and continues after the boat. The camera follows behind the boat as it approaches Georgie's drain. The camera stops when it reaches it, and we continue to observe as the boat and the boy continue down the street without issue. The camera turns left and looks down the drain, which is dark and has moved focus off them, and then pans down the drain, zooms in the darkness. Pennywise's eyes appear. Cut to black. Subtitle. End of part one. The audience gasps. OMG, there's more? End. Unfortunately, though, this didn't happen, and I have to settle with only it happening in my imagination. But how cool would that have been? Um, I do agree. I really agree. I really like that. Um, I really wish that there was a post credit scene. Um, you know, and we live in an age where that's kind of becoming more and more the rule, and we knew that this... New Line Cinema knew that this was going to be a hit. They were very, very um, confident in it in its promotion. Um, and it was tracking very well. It wasn't tracking uh, with the numbers that it's getting. I mean, no one really could have expected it to be... I mean, th- this is beating summer blockbusters. Uh, this is a summer blockbuster hit in the fall. Um, and so no one really predicted that. But they predicted enough to be a hit enough to warrant a sequel, so I think they should have leaned into that. Um, so I agree with you completely. Um, so uh, Sandy continues, A shame I'm not a Hollywood scriptwriter, haha. I could have made the Dark Tower screenplay with more than toilet paper if it was scribbled on. It's so funny that I think every email I've read um, has mentioned the Dark Tower being a terrible movie. Anyway, that's short. Haha, <laughs> three-page summary of my thoughts on the film. I can't wait to hear your review. Long days and pleasant nights. Sandy from Canberra, Australia. Thank you, Sandy. Great email. Um, write in again um, if you should feel so. Uh, Evan writes, Constant Reader, I think that I got a review on iTunes as you requested. Again, I think that your podcast is brilliant. It was great in my view. I only have one thought that I cannot get out of my head, and I was wondering your point of view. First, I totally agree with you that King relies too much on the N-word to articulate racism. It has a lot of it. It, however is the first of King's novels to really take on race in a significant way and not just a characteristic of a nasty character. Racism and homophobia are included by King as a part of the sickness in Derry. Mike had a couple important roles in the book. One is as a historian, although this is all done between the timelines. As I recall, Mike started his historical research around 1980 or so. I do not remember the kids having much historical awareness except through the photo album or Mike's visit to the Ironworks ruins. Of course, this historian role is given to Ben in the film. Mike is uh, is also there was a way to introduce some of these racial issues. It is through him we get the story of the black spot. The jealousy among poor whites towards upwardly mobile blacks was a big part of racial violence throughout American history. I think Nancy McLean's book on the Klan talks some about how they targeted uh, mostly upwardly mobile black farmers, but pretty much any good book on racial violence gets this point. So the Butch Bowers Henry uh, Butch Bowers William Hanlon conflict seems true to me, and Butch passing his racism onto his son has reflections as well throughout history. People brought their children to racially motivated lynchings, after all. Overall, I think that the racial issues were handled very well in the novel and emerge as a very brilliant way for King to connect the themes of maturation to the very real history of racial violence. 
I am kind of thinking about the Wendigo and Pet Cemetery, which seems to connect the genocide of the Native Americans. Great interpretation. On the one hand, I get avoiding some of this in the film considering the growing awareness of police violence towards black Americans, but this begs the question, why make Butch a police officer? When this was revealed, I thought, okay, this makes sense with the movie set two years before Rodney King beaten. The film writers and directors certainly did not shy away from child abuse and bullying. They also got the adults' indifference right in general, but none of them seemed particularly racist or homophobic. Not the place that would be home to the main legion of white decency or fill up the kissing bridge with anti-gay graffiti. I wonder if King in the novel wanted to critique the boomers a bit for growing up, down with the struggle, but then opposing school busing in Boston when they were all grown with mortgages. I will need to see the movie again, but I think the black spot was mentioned as an African-American club, not that it was burned down by essentially the Klan. It was mentioned that it was burned down, but I believe they said a cult, like an all-white cult. It, I, 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 Whatever they said... It kind of took me out for a second. Like, I, I didn't quite understand what they were going for. As I recall, the suggestion in the film that it was all it's doing, in my reading of the novel, the burning of the black spot, the Bradley gang murder, the lynching of Claude Heroux, and the related labor violence are reflections of its evil in the town. But in those cases, it is a bystander. I agree, yes. As you probably know, the murder of Adrian Mellon was based on the murder of Charlie Howard, which took place in Bangor while King was writing it. I think it would be a mistake if Part 2 wrote this out. I agree. That said, it has to be done right. 2017 is not 1985, and the homophobia of our time will look different than what King put on the page. I do agree, but at the same time, I don't agree. Um... Um, I wonder if um, Adrian Mellon uh, should be revised to not necessarily be gay, but to be transgender. And I believe that that would speak to the level of homophobia that we are facing today and be much more relevant to the, the, the topic that, um, that we, we, we seem to be discussing of late. Um, I do not think any of this takes away... Yeah, I mean, like, start out at a bar... Um, and have a, um, a transgender character coming out of a bathroom. I, I think that that would be the way to go. And then having the, the, the attackers watch um, this character come out of a, a bathroom um, that they have deemed to, to be like very gender-specific. And uh, then they follow the, the character to the kissing bridge rough the character up, throw them over, the, throw the character um, over the, the, the bridge. I think that that would be a very 2017-specific, um, 2015, 16, 17, 18, 19-specific uh, um, situation. So I do not want to think uh, that this takes away from what is a great film and an effective adaptation. I do think that what King did with Derry's history of racial and homophobic violence is one of the things that turned a great horror novel into a great work of American literature. Best, Evan. Evan, thank you for your very spot-on thoughts and deep analysis of the, the heart of the horror that, that King was able to capture in his 1986 novel. And then we have Sarah, who writes, um, I just wanted to send a quick email as I finished your three-part IT review. I held off listening and until I actually finished the book myself. I'm a huge Stephen King fan, but shockingly, I'd never read it. 
I had never even seen the miniseries. I'm not entirely sure what put me off of it, but once I knew that the movie was being released this year, I knew I had to read it. I put down Mr. Mercedes and purchased it. Good choice! It took me a while to finish it, somewhat due to its length, this coming from someone who has read The Stand multiple times, but also due to its content. Not just the horror from Pennywise, but the interludes, the abuse Bev suffered at the hands of her father, the racism, the bullying. It's a heavy book. I finished it after two months on Sunday after hiding from my kids and husband for about two hours. I listened to your three-part review this week, and I have to say I agreed with a lot of what you said. Ben not having much of a purpose, although to be fair, he did get rid of its baby eggs. Eddie being asexual and perhaps gay, I get the feeling that when he died, touching Richie's face, trying to find the words to say to Richie, but dying as he contemplated them, I found that to be such an intimate scene and wondered, maybe? The sex scene being completely unnecessary and out of character for all of them, I feel like yes. Some of the content could have been trimmed down, but ultimately, I'm glad that it wasn't. Though yes, I could have done without the sewer sex, Bev was more than that. I'm also glad to see that they didn't combine characters in the film because Seven seemed to be a magic number, as Seven is a magic number, and that felt important somehow. Also, I have to say that the end struck me rather unexpectedly. It made me rather emotional. There's something so relatable about having these childhood friends you did everything with, and then as adults, forgetting them. One of King's quotes that remains one of my favorites. I never had any friends later on like the ones I had when I was 12. Jesus, does anyone... So many of your formative years are spent with these people, and then you grow up and grow apart and begin to forget. For me, the kids were the heart of the book, and I probably shouldn't have waited so long to read it, but I'm so glad that I did now. I'm seeing the film tomorrow night, so I'll be interested to hear how you liked it once you release your review. Thanks for a great podcast. I'm a happy subscriber, Sarah. Sarah, thank you for writing in. Thank you for reading it. These are these are great thoughts. Um, I'm glad that you got a lot out of the, the, the book. I hope you liked the movie. Um, and then Sarah, I don't know if it's the same Sarah, I'm not, I'm not quite sure, um, uh, writes, uh, for fan casting. I want, um, people to, to, to fan cast the sequel. If you could get adult actors to play these characters, who would you get? All right. This is all the rage right now. So I want to hear your thoughts. I, I've been on record saying that I want, um, uh, Bill Hader as Richie. I want Jessica Chastain as Bev. Um, everyone else I really haven't thought about too much, um, I was really trying to, to fan cast as I was watching maybe Jesse Eisenberg. I don't know, as Stan, um, the, the actor who was playing Stan as a kid, like there's some, there's an, there's an actor as an adult that it, it, I, right at the tip of my tongue and I can't quite picture him. Um, is it Jesse Eisenberg? I'm not sure. Would it have been Anton Yelchin? I'm not sure. Um, Eddie, I don't know. I'm trying to think about Bill. Who would Bill be? Like there's, I was, I was I was like watching Bill. I'm like, who does that guy look like? Is it a young Toby Maguire? Could Toby pull this off? I don't know. I don't know. But um, very interested to see what you guys have to say about uh, who who could play these characters as adults. So Sarah writes. A part of me hopes they go for lesser known actors. But uh, but she continues. Bill. Patrick, Wilson. Sarah, all for it. Huge Patrick Wilson fan. Huge Patrick Wilson fan. And Patrick Wilson has his bona fides in the horror genre. All right? He has um, The Conjuring. He has Insidious. He's got that James Wan cred right there. Another thing about uh, Patrick Wilson. Underrated comedic actor. Those of you who have not seen The A-Team, a lot of people didn't. 
Look, this is a missed opportunity for a franchise, guys. Joe Carnahan's A-Team is a great movie. It is a really solid action movie with a great comedic and villainous turn by um, by Patrick Wilson. I'm, I'm not even joking. I'm not being sarcastic. I'm not being facetious. I'm being dead on. You know, Patrick Wilson tends to play the more straight-laced characters, and he plays that character very, very well. Um, but he also does comedy very well. Go watch The A-Team. I would love to see him as Bill. Um, Bev, obvious choice, Jessica Chastain. Second choice, Bryce Dallas Howard. I said very much the same thing in my last review. Ben, Jeremy Renner. Interesting choice. Wouldn't have thought it. Jeremy Renner would be good. Um, Mike Chadwick Boseman. Dude can do no wrong. All right? Chadwick Boseman oozes cool. I would love to see him as Mike. Um, Stan, Hugh Dancy. Yeah, I also can see Hugh Dancy as Patrick Wilson. I mean, I when I picture Hugh Dancy, I just picture the trembling uh, Will from Hannibal. Um, just always on the verge of a breakdown, so I definitely see why it's Stan, but I also see a strength in that uh, in, in that actor that I can see him as Bill. Eddie, Charlie Cox. It's funny that you said that for Eddie, because I can see him as Bill, because he has that leadership um, quality, but, you know, let him flex his acting muscles, because I, 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 I don't quite see him as Eddie, but, hey, I'm not going to rule that out. Richie, Bill Hader. We're, we're in agreement there. Henry Bowers, Sam Rockwell. Also, I'm interjecting, Sam Rockwell could play Richie. That's another thought. Um, but Henry Bowers as Sam Rockwell, he would be great because he can play unhinged very, very well. So thank you, Sarah, for writing in. Um, Mark writes, and I've seen this before, um, what, what Mark is about to say. The only person I want cast is Seth Green. I personally think that would be great for him to reprise his role as Richie Tozer. I'm sure there will be more popular picks for an adult Richie, but I would like to see someone from the original TV series in one of the new movies. Just my two cents. Um, so, Mark, thank you for writing in um, for that. I've seen that echoed um, in some places before. So, guys, uh, I'm now over two hours. Uh, my last episode was... Uh, over an hour so now we're approaching three three and a half hours of me talking about 2017's it um and i'm gonna put a pin in it now so i there are some emails that i have not read i will read in my next episode um and if you are listening to this and have not written in about just your thoughts on it or or fan casting i want more fan casting these are really good examples of fan casting that are going to get me thinking feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com and a couple of you mentioned um writing into itunes uh which would really help me out um, in the, the last year, there has been an increase in Stephen King podcasts and, um, I really would like to see my podcast continue to be in the top searched podcasts. And, um, the best way to do that is iTunes subscriptions and iTunes reviews. So if you do listen and have not written a review to iTunes, Guys, you could really help me out by just spending a minute or two writing a review on iTunes. That would continue to keep the Stephen King cast towards the, the top of the Stephen King search on iTunes. So, feel free to do that. Feel free to write in stephenkingcast at yahoo.com and follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, um, where I, I, I post regularly. 
And next week, guys, I don't know what's up next week. Um, I could review Gerald's game. I could review one of the uh, adaptations from Night Shift because the, the, since coming back, I had a I had a vision. I was gonna go through all of the the the, the short stories um, that I didn't get around to the the first time, and the the, the adaptations based on the short stories that I didn't get around to the first the first time. So I'm still kind of working my way in that. There's just been a lot of Stephen King stuff happening that's kind of gotten in the way of that. The Dark Tower, I've done interviews, it. Um, and next week we have Gerald's game coming out. So I might review a um, Stephen King uh, adaptation from Night Shift. Um, I might review Gerald's game. Um, either way, there will be a, re- a Gerald's game review coming soon. I would like to get a couple more interviews in there. Um, there's some, there's some people I've been talking to that have been very, very patient that I have not gotten back to in a while, but life has gotten busy. Um, I'm currently in the midst of, of getting ready to move. And, um, so life, life has just been busy. Um, which, so thank you everyone that have waited patiently because first of all, you waited patiently for my review of it. And then I was supposed to get this second review out earlier this week i just didn't have a chance to get to the movies again to watch it so thank you all for just being patient listeners of the stephen king cast i cannot do this out you i appreciate everyone that that tunes and listens to me it is the craziest feeling in the world to know that my thoughts matter to other people it's just ridiculous um but thank you thank you for listening i really do appreciate it and so I don't know what's going to come out next week um, in terms of, of what review I'm going to do, but there will be a review coming soon. Um, and in the meantime, may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I will see you here next time where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast. <laughs>